Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I am Pat Iyer, and this podcast features Nancy Stuck, who is an emergency department nurse, an expert witness. She's an expert fact witness, we'll talk about a little bit later. And she also does behind the scenes consulting. She's got a deep experience in what happens in the emergency department. She's been a nurse for over 34 years, has a master's degree in nursing, and has worked in some of those critical care units that you would consider to be pretty high risk, telemetry, adult ICU, neonatal ICU, a flight nurse. She's one of those people up in the helicopter or has been up in the helicopter that you see flying into a hospital. And we wanted to focus this show on what happens out in the field. You've seen records from rescue squads or fire departments. If you're based in the United States, you've seen those beautifully precise records. Nancy has, in this show, is taking us behind the scenes into what happens from that point of impact. And this information will help you when you are evaluating EMS records. Nancy, let's talk about what happens at the scene. We've got two cars that have collided. Somebody pulls out a cell phone. Where does the EMS system get activated? How does that piece happen? So in most areas in the United States, they have the general number now that's calling 911. There are dispatchers um, it, within different areas within the United States that will pick up that call, call and then direct it towards the people closest to where you give the address or where you're located. Now, sometimes if you're in a large urban environment like I am, the dispatcher has to choose between multiple different places, but in more rural settings, there may only be one choice. So once the decision is made, they contact, and that's why the 911 operator will start asking questions. Is anybody injured? Is, is there a fire that they would also need a fire department? Is somebody trapped where they would need, again, the fire department to help with the tool, help have tools to help open the car? So they're asking you different questions just to help send the most appropriate people in response to uh, your call for help. Once that, uh, call, once that call goes through, then the people, as people start showing up, um, the first responders on the scene may reevaluate and call back and ask for a different type of help or more of the same help. I've been involved in a couple of cases where what was said to the 911 people was critical and discovered that those recordings are not kept indefinitely. So if you're involved in a case in which the 911 recording itself is important, then you should advise the attorney to act quickly so that it gets preserved. Correct. 
Right. And then who is likely to come on the scene or does that depend upon where this injury occurs? It depends on where the injury occurs and what the injuries are in initially told to the 911 dispatcher. So they there are different levels of EMS. There's basic life support EMS and then there's paramedics and the paramedics obviously if there's more severe injuries they're the ones that come if it's if they say no everybody's out walking around they just kind of want to get checked out the 911 may decide to send uh, basic life support EMTs first and see if that's the response that's needed again if there's a fire then they would send the fire department and then if you're in a rural rural situation um, I know that in the area I live in there's a rural county, a couple of rural counties about 30, 40 miles away. So they have a few different um, EMS houses, ambulance stations, but they're staffed with EMT. So more basic level responses. If they need a higher level of care in the back of an ambulance as a paramedic, they have what's called a chase car. What the chase car happens, it, or what happens with a chase car is that uh, in this instance where I am familiar with, uh, the person, the paramedic who is in the chase car might sit it like a hospital. When that person hears the call go out where they need a higher level of care, they drive a provided car to the accident scene separate from the ambulance. And then they jump into the ambulance and provide care while the ambulance is taking the patient to the hospital. And then presumably somebody gives them a ride back to pick up the That's car. That's always a goal. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about one time that I was in my town and I watched an ambulance run a red light and it clipped the back of a, a little red car. It's burned in my memory because I was thinking, oh my God, the ambulance and a car are now in a crash and inside the ambulance is somebody who's being rushed to the hospital. What are the rules, if, if you know, about do ambulance drivers have to obey the traffic uh, lights and stop signs and all that? How does that work? So in my understanding, they do, but they can run red lights, but they can't run without warning. So you'll see the ambulance drive up to red light and stop, and they have to have lights and sirens going, and then they stop, look different directions to make sure that traffic from coming from opposite directions also stop to allow them to then go through the red light. They shouldn't be just going directly through because, as you said, um, somebody coming from the other direction, not paying attention, there's going to be, now the ambulance is also going to be in some sort of collision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in this case, the ambulance didn't stop and the, it was heading right to the hospital and the car that was crossing at the light was clearly not paying attention to the siren or also the view of the ambulance was blocked. You know, when I stay in my house in Florida, everything is very flat and you can see in in any direction quite a distance but in this case there was no visibility and chances are you know not knowing the specific circumstance chances are the driver inside that ambulance then radioed back to somebody to let them know that one that they'd been involved in an accident and two 
to say, hey, that car looks pretty damaged. You need to send now another ambulance to that accident scene to investigate and to evaluate the patient, potential patients there. We've had, and what brings that up then to the point is um, inside the ambulance and how they're secured and how that patient tolerated being in another accident mm -hmm. were they properly secured, was equipment properly secured. Um, that has been within lawsuits too, where the equipment's not secured or the patient's not secured. And there's a lot of hard things inside an ambulance too, a lot of equipment that somebody could bang into. And it's not just, so I've had two cases, I've seen two instances where um, the ambulance crew did not secure the small oxygen tank and it became a projectile missile. And it went into actually another, uh, one of the ambulance attendants head. Um, she was killed instantly. Ugh. There's uh, been instances where if the AMS chooses to put a patient on the backboard, they secure the patient to the backboard with straps appropriately, but they forgot to secure the backboard to the stretcher. Mm -hmm. So when the ambulance stopped quickly, the stretcher, the uh, backboard with the patient on it flew off the stretcher. So things to look at is how were things secured within the vehicle itself. Oh, that gives a whole new dimension to an emergency, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> an emergency within an emergency. Exactly. Oof. And you mentioned basic life support. And I, I know that sometimes inexperienced attorneys think that because they request the ER records, they are also going to get the EMS records. And that may be a two-step process. Could you talk about the difference between BLS and ACLS? So it's BLS, the, there's different levels of EMS. They have for a while intermediate also, which I believe is being phased out. I taught at a community college, I taught uh, paramedic students for about five years. And this was in the late 2018, 19 era. And they were starting to phase out intermediate. And basically what it is, is what type of care they are allowed to, they're authorized to provide based on how much training they've had. So basic life support, they can do CPR, they can provide you with oxygen and they can transport you. They could put maybe a tourniquet on if something's an arterial bleed, but they usually can't start IVs. They can't do anything for your airway other than hold your jaw in the appropriate position and try to give you bag valve mask ventilation. The paramedics, um, again, they're trained to do a lot, but then their person, their own regional um, protocols may limit what of those tools they're allowed to use. So they're the uh, EMS providers that can intubate, put a, put a breathing tube down you. They can start uh, intravenous lines and they can push um, drugs such as epinephrine uh, while they're uh, if it would be needed for like CPR. Uh, they're trained to maybe stick a needle in your chest to get rid of a tension pneumothorax. So let air out of the wrong place of the lung that's collapsed, causing your lung to collapse. But they may not be allowed to do it. So you also have to know what the protocols are. Just because they're a paramedic and have been trained in certain skills, their local protocols may or may not allow them to do all of those skills. You know, as you were describing this, I was thinking about what an emotional 
strain it must be for somebody who does this day in and day out and sees some of the most gruesome scenes how do they deal with the emotional stress and pressure of the job well there's been more focus lately on what's called debriefing and it is to encourage those involved afterwards to sit and discuss it and it's not necessarily to place blame or say you know you did this wrong or you did this right it's if that's mentioned, it's mentioned within the environment of let's learn from this. But even if you do everything right, sometimes the outcome is not the best for the patient. So it's important that they have some sort of um, resource, whether there's a mental health resource offered through their job or it's a mental health resource that they obtain through the community itself. But you talk about a bad Stress, how it affects them. This just happened in our emergency room about two months ago. Um, paramedics were called to a scene of a domestic violence. Uh, the husband shot the wife. They brought the wife to us, but they had to do CPR almost the entire way. She was shot in the chest. And based on American College of Surgeons, if they have CPR in progress for less than 15 minutes, for a penetrating wound, uh, we'll do what's called an open base thoracotomy. Where we'll actually, the surgeons will actually just open the chest up right there and try to repair any holes or any damage they can see before going down to the operating room. So that was done. Unfortunately, the female um, did not survive. And the paramedics had been standing there the whole time. And so when they pronounced the patient dead, the one paramedic goes, oh, too bad about the baby. Well, everybody froze because nobody had said that the, that the lady was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So they did an emergency C-section. They did resuscitate the baby, um, but it had been depressed, oxygen pride for quite a while. So there was some blame going around. But what was found out later when you're talking about stress is those paramedics witnessed the shooting. Mm. So they were there for the entire thing. When they got there, the man was still holding the wife. So they watched her, they watched her be shot to death. So they did what they could, but they also had, and, and you know, man pulls out a gun. You, you don't want him to shoot the wife, but also you don't want him to turn around and shoot you. Right. So Very dangerous situation. They had right. So even even with a domestic call, the police are there. You know, there was nothing they could do to stop at least the shooting of the wife. So they had their own stressors to deal with in addition to what was going on with the patient. Mm -hmm. Boy, that would give you nightmares, wouldn't it? To yes. be involved in that. Right. I think sometimes, at least I, speaking from personal experience, underestimate what the police on that first line have to deal with. Right. <clears throat> the situations that they walk into, and that's just having done a domestic violence conference earlier this year, mm -hmm. I realized that that's one of the most dangerous situations for bystanders and for police is when there is an intimate partner violent act like that and people are caught up in the moment trying to intervene and at risking their own lives right. to try to de-escalate the situation. And sometimes it really does come down to a split-second decision, and that's not to say that 
they always get it right or they always get it wrong. Mm -hmm. But usually it's not just a straightforward answer one way or the other. They have to, you have to look at more of the details of what's involved. Mm -hmm. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Hello, my name is Pat Iyer, and I'm with Dan Capellan, who is one of the speakers at our October 27, 2829, 2022 online LNC conference. I've planned this conference with Barbara Levin to bring to you people from a wide area of expertise to share with you their concepts that will help you in growing and sustaining your legal nurse consulting business. Dan, I am so excited that you're planning to be one of our speakers, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to share. For our viewer or the person listening to this little segment, what is it that you're bringing to us? Well, thank you, Pat. I'm excited as well to be part of your conference and to share with your audience. Your audience is going to come away after my talk with how to show up as a leader in every interaction with every person every day so that they can make the impact and create the value that they want as they work with clients, as they network for business, as they perhaps uh, look for uh, assistance to help them with their, with their business. And they will feel more confident and that confidence is going to be seen by the people they interact with. And those people will want to follow them. They will want to refer them. And the result is they will grow their business organically. Oh, growing the business organically sounds like a wonderful thing, Dan. I appreciate the fact that you're going to be sharing your expertise with our audience. You can sign up for the conference right below this video. The link is lnc.tips forward slash October 2022 virtual. That's all one word, lnc.tips forward slash October 2022 virtual. The conference is October 27, 28, and 29, 2022. And if you see this video after that date, we will have the recordings available for you to be able to invest in and obtain all the benefits of the education that we shared at the conference. So be sure to get your seat and make that investment in yourself and in your business to grow it with our help and with Dan Capellan's help. We'll see you there. Now let's return to the show. Well, let's wind back to where we were. We were talking about basic life support and advanced life support. The importance of getting records from both of those ambulances, by the way, if they were both involved, because sometimes it takes a little digging on the part of the legal nurse consultant to realize that there was also ACLS at the scene. Records are generated in the helicopter also. Can you tell us what that's like? You were a flight nurse. You're working in that tiny space in uh, a, what hopefully is a brief trip, but sometimes can take longer 
Uh, tell us about what that environment is like and what we should be looking at or thinking about as legal nurse consultants when we see flight records. So it's it's another stressful environment and it's stressful not again, not just because of the patient, but there is documented physiological stress from from flying. Um, especially I did um, what's called rotor ring, so wing so helicopter versus an airplane or fixed wing. And in rotor ring or helicopter, the constant, there's like a constant underlying vibration that you may or may not be aware of, but it's still stressing your body. Um, it's a closed environment, like you said. And then depending upon the company, some carry, it, there's a different mix of who, who, what the provider certifications are in the back of the helicopter, just like there is for an ambulance. Um, it's crowded. And so you may have a lot of the equipment, uh, like we used to say, we're a flying ICU. We have almost all the equipment that you would have in an ICU in a small transport, but it's still crowded. So when you're, when you're asking for records and you're looking for records, one thing, it, it starts from the beginning. It starts from who made the decision that this person went by air versus ground. What were the criteria they based that decision on? Then you look at timing. How long was it of the time that they, because in the dispatch notes and actually usually on a flight nurses or flight paramedics um, notes that they, their chart, it'll say time they were dispatched, time they arrived at the scene, time they left the scene, and then time they arrived at the hospital. Mm -hmm. So looking at that can give you a clue of um, was there a delay in that? And what was the cause of that delay? There's, there are going to be delays. And that's not to say that every time a helicopter is delayed, that it's a bad thing. But they, you have to look at the timing from the, dis, from the time the accident happened to the time that the it, ground providers got there to the time they requested the helicopter to dispatch the helicopter to arrival at the scene. Then again, you look at the makeup of the crew. Some helicopters only fly with one person in the back. So there's a pilot up front. There's a, one provider in the back. Others fly with two people. Um, I've seen the makeup of its two paramedics. I've seen ours was a flight nurse and a flight paramedic. Um, some places carry a nurse and a doctor. Some carry a nurse and a respiratory therapist. So then it's a, important to know what the certifications are of everybody who's in the back of a helicopter. And occasionally they may take a third person and then you need to find out what their certifications are based. And then was, was that the appropriate level of certification for professionals in the back based on the patient's needs? So there's a lot of decision-making, it sounds like, that goes into this. I did a podcast with a flight nurse who talked about the weather and how that influences whether the helicopters can fly. Right. And also he commented on, on how dangerous it was that he knew of helicopters that had gone down and crashed in the midst of transport and how upsetting and worrying that is for people in the field when they hear of those crashes and how that influences their own perceptions about their job. They're dedicated to the patients. They fulfill a very important role and they know that they're putting their own lives 
on the line. I don't know if you, when you were flying, thought in those terms or you, or whether you could push that away. I mean, tell us about that. Always, it, it varies from person to person. It was always in the back of my mind. Um, part of it is, you know, how your bond and trust with the pilots, but then the program itself, what's the culture of the program? A lot of programs have their own helicopter mechanics. Others might have one or two mechanics for multiple areas. So they're not as readily available. The mechanics all have guidelines, just like your car you take for a 10,000 mile check or a 30,000 mile check and at 30,000 miles, they recommend A, B and C be changed. It's the same thing for a helicopter. So they have, it's usually based more on flight hours um, you know, like a, something might be changed after 500 flight hours or something else might be changed after um, so many takeoffs. So it just kind of depends on what it is. But then you get to the find out the culture. Um, some have some companies have the culture is we're going to go no matter what. And there's a lot of internal pressure on pilots to take a flight that normally they'd say mm, this weather's kind of iffy. We probably shouldn't go but the company pressures them to go anyway. Sometimes that works out and sometimes you have a detrimental effect, like you said. Um, so a little known thing that was advertised is, you remember when John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, and his wife Caroline you know, died in, off of New York, um, that exact same day, there was a helicopter crash in Texas. And what had happened is they were at an accident scene and when they lifted up, and I believe they were at a thousand feet, the propellers just fell off. Oh. What that led to, and this is right after I started flying. <laughs> so what that led to was they discovered through the crash investigation things that were holding, I believe it was things that were holding the blades in place had cracked and worn. Well, they had never realized the longevity or the timing of those being changed. So actually across the United States, they shut down a lot of helicopter services until the FAA did, until all those could be changed. And so left without. So it's a cultural thing and it, de and it depends upon the company that you work for and what it's like within that company. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought up some great points, Nancy. I have to say, I'm glad that you're working in a building that is grounded to, by gravity and that you're not up there in those skies any longer. Well, we have our own issues now. We've had a few people come in with, patients come in with guns, so. Oh. A different, just. <laughs> Which would not happen if you're in a helicopter, right? You right. don't have to worry it's, it's about anybody knocking on the door saying, come on, <laughs> open up. I want to shoot yeah. you. It's a different safety factor. I also wanted to ask you while we're talking, you mentioned earlier about being strapped on a board and the board not being strapped to the stretcher. Is it still universal practice to put people with suspected spinal trauma on long boards and secure them in place? So again, it depends upon the mechanism of injury and potentially what the patient is complaining of. They've tried, it, it used to be that almost everybody that was transported was automatically put on a backboard. I mean, the good thing about it is it does ease transporting the patient, getting them off the stretcher into the hospital bed or onto the stretcher from 
after they get out of the car and maybe they're on the ground. So that helps with that ease. However, unfortunately, what that led to was a lot of pressure ulcers. Mm. Um, they were left, patients were left on the backboard through the entire, and they're hard plastic usually. Some, they used to be wooden. They changed them to plastic mainly because they're easy, it's easier to clean. But they left them on through their entire evaluation. And sometimes the evaluation, depending on what needed to be done, you were talking a few hours. And mm. that led to pressure injuries. So now the protocol deals more with, is the person complaining of spine pain anywhere along their spine? Or did the mechanism of injury um, lead you to believe, for example, a fall from a great height, that sudden impact, high risk of spine injuries, diving into a swimming pool, again, you hit your head, high risk of spinal injuries. Um, but like we used to have people come in who were shot in the shoulder, it were on the spine board. Well, there was no, there's no need for that, right? So it really depends. They have to look at the mechanism of injury and put that with a patient complaints, but even if they're not complaining of back pain, if the mechanism of injury has a high risk of a spinal injury, they may still put them on because sometimes the pain doesn't really help until something slips. <laughs> so they put them on for safety. So it just kind of depends, but it's not universal anymore to automatically do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I also wonder about the the practice of using hard cervical collars versus soft cervical collars. Um, I remember helping an attorney with a case in which a woman was, she was in a parking lot and her car was hit by another car, was somebody backing up and not paying attention. And the, the joke around the law practice was that she raced into the, to the pharmacy department and purchased a soft collar and immediately put it around her neck. <laughs> Do soft colors do anything? I guess that's one question that I have. Um, no. <laughs> so what soft colors do is they're more like a reminder. Um, they can provide a little bit of support. Um, so just if you would take a general sense of some patients may say, yes, that having that soft cushion does provide some sort of relief. But the purpose of the collar is if you have broken bones that may uh, allow the spinal cord to move or you have to hold your neck in one exact position. The hard collar prevents you from turning your head or moving it up and down. What they have done though, because hard collars, again, another thing that caused a lot of pressure injuries is that many hard collars now are, are padded and different brands have different amounts of padding. So we will have patients come in in one type of hard collar from the field, which is fine because hopefully they're in it for less than say 20, 30 minutes at the most. If they, if we suspect that there might be a neck injury or anything like that, we'll change them into um, a type of collar that has more padding in it to help cut down on potential for pressure injuries. Mm -hmm. But you need the firmness of the hard collar to really prevent you from moving your neck and causing any type of paralysis or damage. So soft collars are for comfort, but they, you can move your neck all around while wearing one. I have a feeling, Nancy, we could tap your brain for hours and I could ask you questions and we could be here for a long time, but we won't be doing that today. <laughs> I appreciate what you have shared. 
I think your information will be very helpful to legal nurse consultants who encounter emergency department records. And as I, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you've, you're an expert witness, so you can review cases involving standard of care. The expert fact witness, which is also called the Rule 1006, is a way of summarizing medical records for pain and suffering and typically purchased services from plaintiff attorneys. That's typically something that plaintiff attorneys are most interested in. And you can also assist legal nurse consultants behind the scenes who encounter emergency department records and need some assistance. Which leads to my last question, how can people get in touch with you? So I'm on LinkedIn at Nancy Stuck, or my email address is nlstuck, S-T-U-C-K, the number three at gmail.com. Okay, let's do that again. Nancy's last name is spelled S-T-U-C-K. And your email address, please give it N again. NLstuck3, the number three, at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. Nancy, I so appreciate you spending your time with me talking about this subject. I know it's one that raises a lot of curiosity. We all are familiar with highways being almost shut down by people who are looking as they drive by to figure out what happened. It's a big component of trauma cases as what happened prior to the patient coming into the emergency department. What was the patient complaining of? Was the patient alert? Were they, uh, did they have a loss of consciousness? I still laugh about a medical record I read probably 20 years ago in which a patient claimed that she had a 17 second loss of consciousness. And I thought, what did she do? Did she pick up her watch and okay, it, it's three minutes after the hour and then look at her watch again. Like how do people know these things? Whether the seatbelt was on or off. Uh, lots of questions that come up in looking at the evaluation of care. And I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me as a guest. And for you watching this program, thank you for participating and seeing this on our YouTube channel, which is Legal Nurse Business, or you can listen to the podcast on the audio channels or go to our website, podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We produce shows weekly and feature people who will bring you knowledge that will help you in your legal nurse consulting practice. You can also receive the transcripts from these programs by subscribing and going to the podcast.legalnursebusiness.com in order to hit the button and then you'll receive the transcripts as we release them. Thanks so much for being part of this program and I'll see you in the next show. I'm Pat Iyer and I have been with Chris Mahan talking with you about marketing and some of the key points to keep in mind, such as focusing on the client's difficulty so that you can remove the pain, making sure that you are not competing with others in the race to the bottom by lowering your prices, but emphasizing value. That's critical. Uh, and recognizing what's the concern that attorneys are experiencing who you want to serve. 
You need to differentiate yourself and make sure that you sound different by focusing on the results of working with you, not simply on the services that you provide. And then take a look at that LinkedIn profile and make sure that you are revising your marketing accordingly. See you next week. Take care. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.